Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Here's a snippet of what's to come. So, alhamdulillah, we're a, uh, you know, we've got over 60 million turnover. Um, primarily setting into Europe, we're the largest Muslim owned lab abattoir. Oh. So this is a sourcing area. But one of the things in business, um, why one is that business it is best best when there's a healthy dose of youth hmm. and experience. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. So just to give you a bit of background to this episode, um, it's uh, one that I think we've broken new ground in, in that we've uh, tried to weave in both the interview side of things with Rizwan and you know talk to him about his business and the uh, insights that he has with running such a massive operation that he does. But then at the same time, Rizwan took us around his abattoir. And for anyone who's a Muslim, you know how halal meat is the topic that gets everyone going. So Rizwan actually took us through the entire process. And I don't think I don't know how many of you guys have ever been to an abattoir. I certainly hadn't been. And so it was a real education to see how the whole thing works. And uh, Rizwan took took us specifically through the whole HMC, HFA debate and took us through the where, you know, the stunning and the slaughtering and how all of that works. Um, so do watch out for that. But let's get straight into the interview. Rizwan, welcome to Islamic Finance Guru's podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you. And, uh, you know, obviously we've done this fantastic tour of, um, you know, your facilities and, um, you know, we will share that with our audience as well. Uh, so Jazakallah Khair for that. It's been a really insightful you know, um, look into how a living, thriving business does. And what I wanted to kind of just ask you is, firstly, you know, you grew up with your father in the trade already. How did that, you know, did you grow up in this area? Did you, um, you sat in, you know, Shropshire, <laughs> lovely Shropshire. How did you kind of, how was your childhood like? Yeah, so Jazakallah Ibrahim for uh, inviting me to speak on the podcast. Um, our childhood is very varied in that parents originally from Pakistan. Yeah. And my dad, well, there are farmers over there in Pakistan, and my dad came over to study in the UK. Um, but at the time he came over to study, they, an opportunity came up by his uncle to get into the meat trade in the Republic of Ireland. Right, okay. This is in the 70s. So my dad moved into the Republic of Ireland and my uncle and other family members didn't know anything about the meat trade, but they got into the meat trade and it worked out very well for them at the time. Um, to the extent that I was, I, so I was born there, my, my mom came over there in, in the late 70s and they grew that meat factory from one factory they had in Ireland to about 13 or so. Wow. By 1992. Um, now what happened at that time was unfortunately there were some other uh, political issues that were happening at the time. There was very high interest rates. 
They were doing a lot of selling of beef into the Middle East and the Iraq war had broken out at that time. There was a lot of money stuck. Uh, because banks had very high interest rates of the recession, they wanted their money back. Even though their company was profitable, it wasn't cash rich. Mm-hmm. And as a result, the whole thing collapsed. Wow. And family members, they kind of went their own ways to extent. So my dad took over um, one of those previous sites, which was this site here in Shropshire Hills. Um, so we moved over in 92. Um, other uncles took over various other factories, other, other places, each one raising cash, etc., to try and do that. Uh, we're the only ones in the family that are still going. But that experience had a bit of a profound impact on my on my dad in that they grew so quickly, so fast, and they became reliant on bank loans, etc. That mm. he never wanted to get involved with uh, banks and, and loans like that uh, again. And so when we actually got into the um, abattoir itself, it really had a feel of a family-run business, even though you know Rizwan employs 100 people, and uh, in that small village, he's probably the biggest employer. But I got the sense that he actually knew people um, that he was talking to, uh, which was pretty interesting, pretty cool to see. And um, I was actually quite surprised by the size of the abattoir as well, because I knew that, you know, this was the biggest lamb abattoir in Europe. So I expected it to be absolutely massive. But actually, um, I mean, it it was pretty substantial, but I I had somehow expected it to be bigger like a factory. But I, I... I suppose, you know, in, in reality, when I saw it, it, it's just a very slick, efficient way of using the space. So you didn't have to be massive. And here was the first time that we actually went into the abattoir itself. So see what you think. We're doing a bit of um, um, renovating one of the rooms over here. Right. Uh, they're going to, we're extending our cutting operation. So that's why they're just doing that. Right. Okay, okay. And do you like, I mean, how many people do you have here now? So we have over 100 people. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So generally in a abattoir slaughtering area, you've got two areas. Yeah. You've got what's called the dirty area, you've got the clean area. Yeah. The dirty area is where the livestock come in. Yeah. And as you slaughter and you process it, the clean area is the meat. I see. So okay. you've got one flow through the system. Yeah. So yeah, this end we're in now, this is more the cleaner area because that's where the live, uh, sorry, out. this is where the carcasses I see. come out and get loaded onto trucks. <laughs> I'll take you through the dirty area first or the livestock area and then we'll walk through how, how the flow is fantastic and do you I mean at what point do you do you stop knowing all of the people by name in a business <laughs> I personally think you need to try to know as many people as possible course, yeah. uh, in the business to sort of build yeah. um, empathy and work, and work with your employees but yeah. it does get difficult because also you have a middle management and their job yeah. is to control um, the guys on the floor, etc. You need to give them the space to have the authority. You don't yeah. want to be um, too close to the people they're controlling because then they might try to bypass them. Of course, of course, yeah. So there's, there's a way of working. But the guys on the floor, I firmly believe, they need to be feel that they, they they can come to the top management if they need to, if they have a certain yeah. issues, etc. Like, it's possible. Uh, and do you, do you guys um, rear a lot of your own um, animals or do you buy them? or We buy them in. So yeah. it's not for, for, for sheep. For example, we've got a hundred acre farm. Yeah. Now, if we had that just for a sheep farming, we might only get two, three hundred flock of sheep on there. Yeah. But we're slaughtering here on an average week about fifteen thousand. Wow. Okay. Um, and on a busy week, I equal one in Christmas time, it's about twenty five thousand. So you cannot rear and no abattoir in the sheep industry rears their own yeah. flock. It must be hard. It's a different yeah. field, isn't it? 
so there was a few interesting things that came out of the walk around the yard. The first was how remarkably clean the dirty area was. So this is an area that's handling 15,000 sheep's worth of manure and dung and all sorts of, uh, you know, offal, um, but actually it was surprisingly clean. Um, and then the other interesting um, insight that Rizwan gave was that he said that in a way, uh, you, well, you've got a car showroom and in a car showroom, you actually are taking disparate bits of, um, you know, stuff and putting it together into one car, whereas in an uh, abattoir, you're doing the exact opposite. And um, there's a real calculus that takes place within the abattoir um, economics to make sure that you're getting a decent price for your, um, you know, for your skins and for your offal, for various different bits and bobs. Because if one of those things is not getting you the right price, then actually overall, uh, even though you might be getting paid well for the meat, overall, you're going to be ending up losing out because of the overall cost uh, of the entire um, production. We don't really see very many animals anymore. No. And they're very calm. They're just yeah. Uh, they're, they're, and do you think, you know, they say that about how uh, rearers of certain kind of animals, they, they pick up their kind of qualities. Yeah. Do you think that's true? I think so, because shepherds in particular are very calm animals. Really? And when you look at some of the um, pig and even some of the cattle guys, they're a little bit more harsher. Really? Um, you do have to have a certain mentality to be a shepherd because you, a lot of is, is on the hills and, and, and sort of the wilderness. And, you know, Prophet said that there, there was never a prophet who wasn't a shepherd. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Uh, it does teach you a lot about patience, a lot about organization, a lot about doing things for the betterment of the flock as a group, mm -hmm. but also looking after the individual requirements of the animals as well. So if someone hurts themselves, attend to that animal. Um, as well as moving the whole flock on if, if they haven't got enough grazing in that area, etc. Yeah, that's really profound. Yeah. It is, it is quite nice, I think, you know, when you're living in a city and when you're living in, uh, you know, built-up areas, you kind of lose touch of that. Mm. And of course, you know, you, because you're living here day to day, you just, you know, you just naturally have that. Absolutely. And for, for us, we, at Kurbani time, for example, we have, you know, a lot of people, we, we actually encourage people to come and visit. Um, to get a feel for what it's like to be in the countryside. We're also trying to, uh, we have this initiative called Halal Shropshire Hills, in that there are some brothers who have halal restaurants in the locality. So we're saying to city people, come to our area, stay in one of the glamping places or cottages in the yeah. area. We've got a mosque over here. We've got some halal restaurants in the locality. Yeah. Show the children the countryside and see what it's like. Go hill walking, um, come see some animals, Fantastic. Go well, archery. You know, There's lots of different ideas like that. Maybe that's something. Well, this is fantastic because I, I think our mm. audience should know about this. I didn't know about mm. this. I think they'd love to come here and. No, know, what, what we out. found is that by accident, some yeah. people come in the area, Muslims, and they were shocked to see a mosque here, shocked to see that there are it's Muslims whole here. here yeah. yeah, so so for people that want to be see what the British countryside course, is like, course, yeah. knowing that there's some people that can place they can eat halal and a mosque over here, which it, makes it, life it, so it, much easier. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah agreed. Agreed. Mm. So in the next section, uh, Rizwan um, took me around the kind of merry-go-round of uh, sheep to the slaughter, quite literally. Um, it's like a circular thing that essentially turns by way of an engine and um, that then moves the sheep towards the actual, like these kind of two funnels which um, feed into the slaughter room, which um, you know, we'll, we'll go into very shortly.
these are all the pen areas and then <coughs> what happens is that when we're going down for slaughtering yeah um, they come into this crowd pen over here so imagine this is now so you got the intake coming in going to the pens and yeah. then they got the list right which pens we're gonna go in yeah they bring them bring them into this crowd pen over here right so what happens here so it, this this looks quite because it's circular it feels like it's gonna feed them through or something absolutely or? so we have a motor over here yeah now what happens is that the actual floor moves so when they when they sheep come in yeah and um, we have a motor that is, it's got a wheel against this wheel here and you can see this wheel that sits on yeah it then turns the floor around so what you got is three doors inside one will lock to the floor and one will lock to the side so that as you're moving across you're actually making a segment smaller so instead of having to push the animals with the gates around the floor is actually moving them and as they come to the exit point here before they go into the slaughtering area the man there doesn't have to move to fetch the sheep to where he yeah, needs to go they just do it automatically it's coming to him the whole the whole idea here is that from islamically and from from any perspective you want the animal to do the work if you stand in the right location hmm. the sheep will go away from you because normally they're, they're not used to human interaction yeah, so yeah, much yeah, yeah. so you're trying to make the machinery move your positioning to get the sheep to go to where you want it to go rather than having to go there and physically handle and the do sheep. it yeah you yeah. might get some awkward sheep that you may need to do that yeah the idea is to minimize that as much as possible and yeah. um, so the fraud themselves Makes sense. The, the less stressed the sheep are the better it is from slaughtering perspective and from, from a sound perspective but also the, the quality of the meat as well mm. section is um, Rizwan taking me around the actual slaughter room itself and just to kind of give you a sense of uh, what size we're talking about is the room probably about I'd say um, 10 15 meters by about five meters um, and no windows and it was the the room that led on from that circular machine thing that fed in these sheep um, into the into the room itself and think of it like two kind of conveyor belts where the sheep would kind of be pushed onto this like padded thing where the, the legs would be dangling and the, and the sheep would get pulled along um, by the by this like padded um, you know uh, conveyor belt thing and the sheep would continue getting pulled along until it would uh, these two funnels would end up um, in front of these slaughtermen uh, so there was four stations um, and the slaughtermen I think the idea was that there would be two of them standing in the middle and they'd lean over on one side and do the slaughter and then they'd lean over on the other side and they'd do the slaughter there as well and then there was some hooks uh, right so the, the the slaughtered animals they would um, you know slide down into this kind of um, you know uh, almost you know in the checkout aisle of Tesco you get the these uh, the area where once the person scanned it they, there's like a little area uh, where the food is uh, you know pushed down into so that's in a way a similar way to that um, there was there was a area where the sheep uh, carcass would go and then presumably when the uh, abattoir is live there's another person there who will then hook it onto the uh, this uh, system that they have hanging from the um, from the ceiling that will um, let the sh animal drain as it um, from blood as it slowly makes its way around uh, down this chute and then around into the place where they start processing it 
This is a sore finger, yeah? So this is, uh, this is like the, the place that ev every animal goes through. Correct. Wow. So you have the, as in the quiet pen over there, those gates, they're, they're like sliding gates. Imagine your cupboard drawers are just sort of sliding yeah. into each other. And what you then do is you feed the animals in through here. Yeah. These are belts. So once the animal goes in, yeah. the feet come off the ground and it's perfectly restrained and there's content on it. And you just have to move the animals forward in a controlled fashion yeah. that the guys don't have to pull you know, to get pull into position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're very, very sort of calm. Even when you come in here, I know it's quiet now, but it, 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 there's hardly any noise in here. So the oh, sheep wow. feel more um, calmer in that environment. Yeah, yeah. We used to have pumps and other sort of stuff happening here. I moved them all externally. So you want to try and keep the sheep as used to the, the, the noise and level, etc., as possible. So okay. you're trying to minimize everything so that up to the very last moment, you know, they, they feel as comfortable as yeah, possible. Yeah, yeah. And sheep also have, are prey animals, so they like to be with their flock, mm. right? So you try to keep them together until the very last moment, basically. So, and is it one sheep at a time comes in? Yeah, so we have basically two systems here. So when we're doing slaughtering without stunning, yeah. and when we serve, say, some, some of our HMC customers, some of our ABS customers, some of our customers who don't want any certification, every sheep will go into one of these belts, so imagine two coming into there, and then those two get moved into here. So one here, one here. Similarly, you got another two coming there, one there, one there. You've got... Oh, so then, so there's, there'll be two guys standing there, two guys standing here. We've, we've basically got two guys in the middle, and they operate in tandem, and that those two guys will, first of all, slaughter those two animals. And then turn around and do this. Then turn around and then do these animals over here. Wow. And, like... I mean, how many do they do, I don't know, per minute, would, they be, would, would that be so the number? Per, yeah, so per minute, I mean, we normally look at per hour, but per hour is usually, we're working between 400 to 450 per hour, which works out to roughly around eight a minute. They must have, like, really strong forearms. <laughs> they get used to it, you know, and it's something that you do have to get used to. Yeah. Um, it's, not, it's nowhere near as fast as chickens, right? So chickens, the non-halal chickens, they do three chickens every second. Obviously, you can't do a tasmiyah for that. Yeah. Even the halal chickens, when they're doing tasmiyah, they're still doing one chicken every two seconds. Wow. You have to go free. You can't even say the whole bismillah. Furious, you have to go bismillah, bismillah, bismillah. It's, it's really quick. Here, they're doing one animal every eight seconds. It's a lot more time than yeah. it is for the poultry animals. Um, and, and you get into the rhythm that, you know, it, it, it becomes just a part of how you do it. Hmm. So the guys have their knives. They're like the animals here. We'll raise the, the, the head. And so this, oh, so this is like kind of a conveyor belt type thing. Correct. I see. So the legs are kind of dangling down there. Exactly. So you got one motor here, one motor here. And that's just pulling this belt, you know, around. So that just pulls the animal through. And then, and then they're like, they're the ones operating it. So they stop it, start it here. Exactly. So these, they, they, the slaughter man, this is why we've got so many buttons all over the place. They've got full control. So they've got one pedal, which is this pedal here, which can be moved around. Probably shuts everything down. No, this no, this will actually move everything in tandem. Oh, okay. So say I want to bring the two animals straight yeah. through from there to there. Yeah. That will control all three. Right. But let's say now they're in these two, but you want to get them a little bit here, a little bit there. That's where this will come. That's in. where these come. In. These will control just those individual ones. Wow. We've got some extra ones that if you wanted to control that one and this one, so he's got more options there. Yeah. And once you slaughter it. There's a time limit, uh, there's a time delay between slaughtering and the animal being dead. 
Now, legally, you have to wait 20 seconds, but usually it's around 10 seconds or so. So this button here, once you press that, it locks it. Right. So he can no, So once he's cut it, presses the button, that will now move until that 20 second time has elapsed. Wow, okay. It's extra control for us to make sure that the guys don't do it earlier than they legally should. Yeah. Um, yeah and yeah. it makes it easier to, uh, to manage. Amazing. Yeah. And then all of that kind of so gets fed. That's what we do slow train without stunning. Yeah. Then you've also got, uh, we also do slow train with stunning. And, and in this case, it's an electric head only stunning. This is what the device looks like. <coughs> Should take a picture of this. Yeah. People want to see that. Interesting. So this is the handset. So this is connected to uh, the actual stunner, which is in there. I'll show you that once I open that yeah. door over there. But the idea is that you're applying this to, okay? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're applying this to the back of the sheep's head, so you yeah. don't see it coming. Yeah. It has to be a little bit sharp because you need to penetrate the wool, because okay. wool doesn't um, is a, is an insulator for electric. Yeah. Okay. But the idea is that you're trying to give a um, you're trying to get electric to go around its brain to give it an epileptic fit. So the current it flows like this. Okay. So when you, when you go to the back of the head, it makes a, a connection, the current will flow like that, it'll give it an epileptic um, uh, fit that it basically it, 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 uh, it, it knocks out straight away. Yeah. As long as you do it correctly. Yeah. And is it operationally, is it quite, I mean, it must be quite dangerous. You don't want to get a human on the end of that. It's got sensing technology on here. Okay. So that uh, the voltage has to be a certain amount or yeah. the, the resistance has to be a certain amount yeah. to for the connection to work. Right, okay. So it's got some safety mechanisms built into it. Interesting. And also, th because we've invested in the higher stun, obviously from a halal perspective, we want to make yeah. sure the stun doesn't kill the animal. Yeah. This has got a upper limit, so that once it goes up to one amp, it'll cut off. You right. won't do any more than that. Um, and they, um, you can get other ones that also have another one to go to the heart to give a cardiac arrest right that kills the animal but obviously right. for halal you don't do that yeah. that's not compatible yeah 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 and this, this is the sort of the crux of the stunning issue hmm. stunning has to meet the criteria of halal which yeah. is does it kill the animal or not does it affect the blood flow or not does it yeah. hurt the animal or not as long as it meets those criteria it is halal however consumers should have the right to pick yeah the traditional structure without stunning either prophet did it or yeah. a stun product um, that meets the halal criteria. Yeah, it's about being transparent about what the methods are. Yeah, what they mean and what do the consumers want. Yeah, 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 makes sense. Because what happens is that some of the people, brothers who want only the traditional style without stunning, hmm. because some stun methods are haram. Some stun methods, like you got a captive bolt, yes. which is a penetrative, um, uh, a physical metal bolt that it's like a gun, but instead of a free bullet, the bolt comes out and it goes into Bang, the out, exactly yeah. it goes into their brain. Yeah. Now, not every animal will die, but definitely some will die. Hmm. Definitely some will die. Hmm. And in Surah Al-Maida, verse three, it talked not not just about Maida being a haram, yeah. but also Makuda, which is yeah. the animal which has died from a blow to the head. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that is a problem from a lot of perspectives. Yeah. Um, other, if you use electric stunning that could kill the animal, that's a problem. So there are problem ones out there. Yeah. But the issue is that the brothers don't differentiate about what's the ones that are compatible, what's the ones that aren't what compatible. So for us, it, it, it's, it's a customer choice. You know, if someone says that this is haram, I have a problem with that unless they have evidence. Yeah. And, and do you, like, let's say a non-Muslim client orders in um, 
a bunch of like you know he he just wants it stunned. Yeah, and you would do the zabiha like you do the bismillah. Yeah, yeah, everything we case. do halal. Wow, okay, that's everything from here would be halal, okay. and people know that it's on our, it's on our website. Yeah. Um, everything from this site is halal. Wow, fantastic. Um, but we do still have questions from people saying that. Um, a lot of non-Muslims think halal is barbaric. Yeah. One, they don't understand the principles of halal. Yeah. Um, but secondly, they think all meat is non-stunt. Now, non-stunt meat can still be done well, right? So there's a whole thing about it can't be done well. That's false. It can mm-hmm. be done well. But again, even on the non-stunt side, like I said, there's risks with different species on the stunt side. Yeah. There's risks with different species on the non-stunt side because cattle, when you do the cut here, They've got another artery in, the, in their vertebra. It's messy if it goes wrong. Well, it's messy when it goes wrong, but anatomically, they've got another artery in their vertebra, which is the, you know, the, the neck bone. Right. That if you, when you cut this, that's still supplying the brain with blood. So cattle take longer to become unconscious. Mm. So whereas a sheep might be 10, 15 seconds, a cattle might be 30 seconds to two minutes. And that's where the pain would kick in. The risk is more. You yeah. can't say even then, definitely the pain will kick in. But definitely the risk is more because the time of the consciousness is more. Yeah, now, I'm not saying that can't be solved because there's also a thing called Naher slaughter. Right. We do a chest cut. That is yeah. practice for camels. Yeah. That could be done for cattle as well. And if you cut it at the chest, you actually cut the artery before it branches off to do that. So that's a possible solution, but no one's doing that. Mm. So it's about, even when there are risks, it's about acknowledging where the risks are and how could it be improved. And uh, because I think a lot of the time this debate is kind of theoretical, people don't really understand the practicalities of it. They don't. And even and look, stunning isn't foolproof. Yeah. When you, when you don't get the connection right, it's a misstun and it's painful for the animal. The idea is that with everything, you're trying to do it as best as possible. Of course, of course. And even with slaughter without stunning, you know, you might not get the knife exactly right. My whole thinking here is that if you do something 90% right, you think, right, how can I get to 95%? Yeah. If you get 95%, how can I get 98%? Hmm. It's all that continually, continually improvement. Yeah, agreed. But you will never, ever get to 100%. But agreed. I want you to try and try to get as far as you can to of that course, 100%. Of course, And it's, I mean, you're, you know, if you're running a, a systematic like business, a big operation, hmm. that's the best you can do. Absolutely. You know, I went to, I went abroad recently for Bukhari. Okay. And, um, and I saw, we, you know, we actually did some slaughters. I mean, okay. I've done it before as well. Yeah. But of a big animal or a small animal? Uh, so this was yeah, a big animal. Okay. This was uh, you know these cows. Yeah. And uh, it's, you know when they set it up because they were obviously just doing it completely freestyle from a yeah. farm. And when did they, they s- tie the legs or yeah 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 and it's on the side. They did all of yeah. that yeah. But when they turned the animal around, they didn't really properly tighten like the neck. Bit. Okay. And so there was the the cut wasn't it didn't really go through the you know the artery. Ah. And so okay. there was a lot of there was like thirty seconds probably a minute worth of a lot of it was quite a painful sight to watch yeah yeah because obviously yeah. the animal is bleeding out he's gonna die anyway yeah yeah but, but it's a he's slower alive. he, he probably yeah. only got one artery because you yeah. got two carotids that's what you need to hit exactly for. exactly so he yeah. possibly only got one or exactly or, or that or he, he might have not even got because you got the veins which go the other way which which um aren't it's better to get the carotids for the animals which are the backer ones uh, so it just depends what vein yeah. they, got, they got. I don't but, think but they got everything, definitely not. But the thing is, you know, from, from a Muslim perspective, you know, the famous Imam al Nawi hadith, and he carries on. So, you know, when you, when you slaughter, slaughter well, when you kill, kill well, like each one of you sharpens blade to spare the suffering of the animal he slaughters. We've forgotten that as, a, as, as, as Muslims, in that, yes, you have to make allowances for poor people who haven't got the equipment and all that sort of stuff. 
But still, the skills and everything required for it, they can be done better than what they're being done. Mm. I've seen videos of in Egypt, they couldn't control the cattle in the slaughterhouse. They were cutting with a knife the tendons of the animal just to get the animal down. Wow. That is, as an act, that is haram. They shouldn't have been. I'm not saying the meat's haram, I'm saying the act itself of, of slashing the tendons of the animal to get the animal yeah, down. Of course, of that's course. Not, that's not allowed. That's not on, yeah. And, um, but it, it just, we've just forgotten this yeah, whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but our ethos here is one of Ihsan. And we try to find every asset of business, but particularly in slaughtering, try to be perfect. Hmm. You won't be perfect, but you, you, you start continually um, yeah. uh, striving for it. This is a stun box I was uh, sort of mentioning. So that generates, so that's got transforming it, it generates the current for that. You set it on there for you know what current you want, voltage, frequency, the whole lot. Yeah. Um, and that that um, it does affect the animal depending on what what one you do. Yeah. Um, but for the one amp for 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 a lamb, it doesn't kill the animal. It's not been known to, and and practically hasn't killed the animal anywhere we've uh, we've heard about it. So a really um, interesting bit of the abattoir was the the stuff that actually happens after the slaughter. So there's a whole bleed process where there's a winding um, uh, hanging uh, hook kind of you know cloth rack almost uh, uh, that goes across this long hall and uh, at each stage there will be people who will be essentially uh, dressing the animal undressing the animal so taking off the um, you know the the head at a certain point taking the skin off using a machine uh, they'll be making various cuts into the animal, getting it ready to be um, completely, um, you know, dressed and undressed and uh, the meat separated out from the uh, innards and the offal and all that sort of thing. And also the skin completely taken off as well. So there's this, there's this whole process that takes place and it is very much like a slick kind of, um, you know, uh, factory almost where the, the this sheep... Uh, and I can imagine it must be absolutely mad when it's up and running because if you've got um, you know fifteen thousand sheep going through that every single uh, week, that really must add up to a to a hell of a lot. Uh, so uh, it was you know weird seeing it quiet, and I think you know next time if I ever get the chance, it will be uh, fascinating seeing it live because I can imagine there must be it must just be absolutely teeming with energy and absolutely teeming with activity uh, with the amount of um, you know people that would be needed to process that sort of thing and we have the food standards agency inspectors standing over here all the time all the time so we have a, a ov official vet here all the time really? he inspects all the animals we have our own internal vet as well but the government has an official vet and then we have food standards agency inspectors here two here for the carcass one there for the offal um, all the time they have to stamp it if wow. they haven't stamped it, it's not allowed to go through. Wow. And then and you, for, when you get HMC or whoever, you have to get those guys in as well. Yeah, so with the HMC guys, they got one in the slaughtering area, and then they got one after our grading area. So imagine it comes through here. Yeah. So the inspector does something here. In here, they're locked here, but in here is what we call a grading station. So right. we've got a computer in here. Yeah. That there's a weight scale up here. So that's where it captures the weight of the animal, okay. of the carcass, sorry. Yeah. And we have a scheme that is it's called the Europe grid. Yeah. So you look at the carcass, how much muscle does it have on it? Yeah. Does it have, is, it, is it a muscly carcass or is it a very yeah. scrawny carcass? Yeah. And how much fat is on there? Yeah. So each EUROP Europe 
is basically they so E grade is a very muscly animals. Yeah. Think Arnold Schwarzenegger yeah. and all of that. P is a very scrawny, you think Mr. Bean or whatever that. Yeah. Yeah. And then you got one, two, five, which is the fat levels. Um so two and three so one is very lean, extremely lean, and five is very fat. So what we're ideally looking for is EUR two and three L. So you don't want with meat you want a little bit of fat for flavour. Yeah. And a bit of fat is good for you. But you don't want it to be too fat. Yeah. So yeah. one is a bit too lean. That's good for kebabs and stuff, but it's not so good for the for the handies and stuff. The two and three L yeah. are better because it's got a little bit of flavour on it. And uh, but if you want to roast three L three H a little bit more fat is, is better for the for the roast to keep it moist. So depending on what cooking you're gonna do with yeah. it, you have different things. I mean, uh, this is gonna turn into a culinary podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's, it, that's our job to sort of know yeah. who's the best customer for which yeah, type of stock. Exactly, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So he's he's making that, and that's a subjective assessment. But based on experience, he then knows. Um, we got we have a grid to follow, but he's still making the decision as to which which box on that grid it falls in. Mad. So once he presses the button, we have a label printed off. Yeah. Yeah. And that label is a carcass label that goes onto the carcass. Yeah. That'll have the grade. It'll have where the carcasses come from. Yeah. It'll have the weight. Um, all traceability, everything information is on that carcass. So the final bit of the trip around the abattoir was to the fridge section. And these are basically these very large, very cold rooms where these uh, sheep are then dragged using the hooks that are attached to the roofs. Um, into you know large kind of holding pens uh, that where they hang and uh, wait to be shipped and you know you've got these big arctic lorries that uh, pull up to the back of this abattoir and you know you can pack in about a thousand plus uh, carcasses into one of those things and they're then sent off to europe where uh, eql euro quality lambs send a lot of their stuff but then after the trip around the abattoir itself, which I think was really helpful uh, and very interesting, frankly, from the uh, the whole stunning side of things, because you know, Rizwan, obviously, he has the view that stunning is acceptable when it comes to lamb. And, uh, and you know, that's different to when it's d done with sheep. Uh, and his uh, very well articulated argument is that we can guarantee that sheep do not die when they're stunned and it reduces the pain for them it is you know is his argument whereas with, with chicken there is a percentage that will die due to the shock that's uh, given to them and so um, with the the stunned approach you um, in the lamb context or in the beef context you aren't actually killing the animal and so one of the key reasons why um, you know stunning is problematic in fact, the key reason is that you are going to potentially end up, a percentage of the animals will end up dying. But Rizwan has basically said that, you know, we have never, ever seen that happen. And uh, if you take that option off the table, then actually um, the stunning when it comes to meat, the bigger uh, animals, um, you know, I can I can see the, you know, the, the basis for that argument. Now, I haven't fully thought it through myself um, my, I mean, my my view is that it's best to prefer HMC uh, wherever possible. But um, you know, if if someone is saying that a meat is halal and it happens to be stunned, then I don't think we as um, Muslims should necessarily dig too deeply into that. The reason why I think we shouldn't dig too deeply into that is because we need to be um, trusting of a Muslim brother and what he says is is halal. 
And no, but of course, if if he's serving something which is patently haram, so for example, if he's serving pork, then that would be a problem. But if he's saying you know, this is piece, this is a piece of lamb, it is halal, then I don't think that we should you know go to the excess that some people do, where they really really want to dig into exactly the origin of that you know that that piece of meat. I don't think we need to go to that excess. I don't think it creates the right kind of environment as a as a ummah and as a community. Uh, if we do that. Something I found fascinating about interviewing Rizwan was that he is definitely someone who has a very strong vision for what he wants to achieve with his business. And you know this, this will come across in the next clip when he talks about the future. Uh, and he also shares some of his views on Brexit. Farm down the road. We've got 100 okay. acres over there. And that, that, that I want to be the state of the art for the whole of Europe. Right. Because UK is the biggest sheep producer in the whole of Europe. Our main focus is export, notwithstanding Brexit and all yeah, of that. Yeah. But we do see that, that, that we have a very strong future in this trade, um, particularly targeting European mm. customers, and we want to build a state-of-the-art facility for that. But we have been doing more into the UK market as well, because number one, <coughs> number one, like traditionally, our main customers have been European and non-Muslim. Yeah. What we're finding now is the Muslims and, 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 and our ethos has always been about quality and service. Yeah. It's like halal was by the by, in, yeah. in, in a yeah, way, yeah, yeah. For, for the customer's perspective. Yeah. What we've, what we've noticed, is, particularly in the last five years or so, is that there is a segment of the Muslim population that is more interested in quality mm. if you explain to them what, what it is. What's going on, yeah. Um, and we, so we have started to sort of tap into that a little bit more and it is resonating. Um, the way that we do, do things and all of that. Um, it's still a segment of them of the halal market, yeah. and our main focus is, is still the sort of the non-Muslim uh, uh, market. But we do see this uh, trend growing. Uh, people are very interested in terms of where the animals come from, how they're reared, what they eat, what how it's slaughtered, yeah, course, yeah. Um, different ways of cooking, different different sort of things like that. So that's that's an area that we're sort of developing. So then we dived into the office itself. Rizwan gave me a quick tour uh, and made a very interesting comparison between sheep trading and stock trading. That is very much like share trading, yeah. but it's different in that with shares, at least you're dealing with one type of shares. With, with sheep, you're dealing with different qualities of sheep. Yeah, yeah. And and so there's added complexity over there. So it's not so easy to automate trades and, and do all that stuff because wow. you're not just buying a sheep yeah. carcass. It's, it's about you know what breed it is, where it's been reared, What's, why, why is eating? Why it's going to kill out as fat level of confirmation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So those quality parameters, you try to judge that in your in your in your buying, and, and then obviously he's trying to throw a set um, into different markets over there. Wow! And you and you can see that the number of phones there it looks like yeah yeah. yeah. It's, it's a lot of calls going on all yeah, the time. All the time. And then finally, we actually sat down to actually do the interview. So for those of you who've listened to one of an IFG interview previously then um, this is the bit that you'll be very familiar with. Enjoy. So, alhamdulillah, we're a, uh, you know, we've got over 60 million turnover. Um, primarily selling into Europe. We're the largest Muslim-owned lamb abattoir. Wow. We've got no debt whatsoever in the company, fully owned by our uh, family. So my family and my uncle's family. Wow. Um, and um, yeah, that's, that's sort of the crux of it. Um, as a child, you do clash with your parents as you're growing up and going through those teenage years. So um, I never saw myself working in the business. 
I'll be honest, when I was young. I, I didn't even know if I wanted to be in business when I was young. Um, I went to Warwick, I did maths computing. And whilst I was there, just by chance, I went on this business course. Um, and it was run by some people from PricewaterhouseCoopers, et cetera, et cetera. And it actually got me really into it. I thought, well, actually, I do want to be in business. But even then, I thought I want to go more into the professional side of, of, of business. So I joined Pricewaterhouse after that. Yeah. So I did my, uh, this is in Birmingham. Did my accountancy, qualified with them. Um, and I was going to go into investment banking in London. So I was more interested in that. Where my father was like, you know, what are you playing at? <laughs> you, need to, you need to come back and help out here. And, and, and I did this, I, I thought long and hard about it. Yeah. And um, then I decided actually the time's right to come back here. So I came back here in 2005. How old um, were you then? So I was 25. Oh, okay, much Yeah, yeah. so it, it was... Um, it was it was it was quite a change from a corporate environment to a family run environment. Yeah. But for me, the the main benefits that I saw was the amount of flexibility I would get on, on, on how I want to do things. Yeah. What I mean by that is, um, I want to go on Hajj, so I went for Hajj that year for the first time. I wanted to go to Pakistan traveling, so I, I traveled there for a while. I wanted to set up our own charity, um, so we set up our own charity uh, foundation mm. for my business. Uh, to uh, a year and a half after after I joined, I wanted to look at how we. Um, and by this time, how big was the operation? Uh, so I mean, we we, we were uh, we were probably about like a we're a third bigger now than we were we were then. Wow. Okay. Um, so we were still significant, but it was there's been a lot of changes in the industry from a regulatory perspective mm. um, since that time, and. Um, it, I mean, when I came into the, into the business, the turnover was about forty million, wow. so something like that. So they and we were still doing we, we, we were doing well, but we were um, there were a lot of change happening at the time. There were new standards coming in place, BRC standards, HACCP standards, um, coming from sort of audit background. I sort of got the feel for where we need to go with that. But even then, I knew very quickly on that I needed more professional knowledge. Mm. So even though my family was in the trade, you need to get that external knowledge to bring your business to the next level. Of course, yeah. So I did a master's in meat science. I wanted to be in a position that if I wanted to do something and someone tell me, no, that's not how you do it because of this for meat quality, etc., that they couldn't question, yeah. They couldn't, you know, basically bull, bull, yeah, bull, yeah, bull, yeah. bull, bull me with, with the different things so I'd know what to do. So that uh, MSc was, um, gave me a foundation from a meat science and quality knowledge. And that also helped me on the halal side as well. Um, because I wanted to know about slaughtering, stunning, what affects animals, what doesn't affect animals from an Islamic perspective. Um, and it's really helped a lot, both in, internally in the business, also outwardly facing in terms of other stakeholders um, speaking to government and other people with regards to the development of halal and they the that's country. really interesting because there's there's like a whole bunch of I mean the Muslim half of the Muslim community as you know are in the 10% poorest areas in the UK and so there's a lot of kind of mom-and-pop shops and a lot of uh, businesses in you know the you know quote-unquote unsophisticated areas of you know the economy um, which like, in a way which is what halal you know slaughter is right but it's uh, really interesting that you went away and you studied to kind of take it to the next level mm. and 
and would you say that that's something that other businesses should look at? So let's say you know you've got uh, a business that's doing cash and carry, mm. and it's doing well. Mm. But do you think that would benefit from someone just studying? Absolutely. Uh, my recommendation to any family business would always be, first of all, have a mix of family and non-family in your business, and secondly, your family members let them go out and experience the world outside of your environment. When you're in your own bubble and your own family environment, you get quite comfortable. Mm. You're not challenged. You're not, um, uh, you don't have to perhaps put in the same efforts that other people have to put in. When you're there and on your own two feet, you do learn extra skills. And then when you come back into your business, you're actually better able to bring your business to another level. Mm. Makes sense. And so, okay, so you came in 2005. Um, so this is a business that's doing well, alhamdulillah. I mean, it sounds really, it sounds, it's like a solid foundation to start from. And um, so what were the kind of, you know, in the last 14 or so years that you know, you've been uh, involved with the business, what were the kind of the biggest challenges that you feel that you had to face as a business? And how did you kind of overcome those? Or, or did you? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I guess at the first um, part of that is that when you have different generations in the same business, you will always get different perspectives. Hmm. And it is important to give each perspective due respect because they're all coming from um, the viewpoint of trying to improve the business. Hmm. Uh, well, what I found coming in is that I had this youthfulness and energy and new ideas, but my father had the contact, the experience, the knowledge of how the industry ticks. And you need to try to work to blend those things together because that's where you can really optimize the business. So I've been working very sort of strategically as I've been back in the business to shape the business so that any trends emerging in the marketplace, we are well placed to uh, benefit or capitalize on. Yeah. Um, from a starting point, our main customers are non-Muslims, mm. and they're mainly in Europe, and, and particularly in France. And French, as many people are quite fussy foodies, um, but our product is very well uh, liked over there. Um, but what we have noticed is that the Muslim population in the UK and indeed in France has become more sophisticated. Mm. It's become more um, aspirational. Um, it's more homegrown. And they want to have higher quality products. So we've been going to a lot more of these um, exhibitions, so whether it's in London or Manchester, etc. Uh, doing surveys, in, interacting with consumers to sort of see what are the things that drives them. Yeah. Um, and some of them is around the halal slaughtering and the halal side, side of things. But there's also a lot of tayyib type ethics in terms of mm. animal rearing, um, growing, etc. Um, but also around the end cuisines, how to cook a different cuisines. Um, you know, whether we had a full spit roast at the London Halal Food Festival. You know, that, that attracted a lot of people to come in. They want to know how can we get this to have a bit of a family get together in our back gardens, etc. So it is important to sort of see what's happening in the marketplace. What, so what do you see as the market like developing towards, um, you know, just general the halal meat industry? Do you see it? Because obviously in the mainstream market, mm. there's this big kind of move towards, uh, you know, delivering completely fresh from the farm straight to your doorstep. Mm. And, uh, you know, there's there's also the, you know, the bes- not the bespoke, but like the kind of niche butchers 
who were kind of very you know focused on their kind of areas mm. how how do you see i don't know the, the market playing out so i think the first thing for for, for a muslim business um and for halal business is don't restrict your market what, what i mean by that is that don't think you're only selling to muslims or to halal consumers um there's a lot of consumers out there who share the ethical values of a lot of the muslim consumers and the tastes and the experiences of the different cuisines so you have to brand and market yourself accordingly mm. um so say when you look at our website we have a lot of knowledge on there from about the um, supply chain and, and the cuisine perspective but then when you go on to the halal section that's when then you get all the details of, of how deep you're going on the halal um uh, side of things so trying to not narrow your market selection this is one thing that i see with muslim businesses particularly at the at the lifestyle shows some of the things that they're selling so it could be oud the perfume but it's branded completely towards muslims mm. some of that would definitely resonate with non muslims mm. if the branding was done a little bit more subtly yeah. so that it doesn't look like this is only a muslim product and i'm not going to even consider it if i'm a, yeah, yeah, if yeah. i'm non muslim so trying to get the widest marketplace for your for your products is important mm-hmm. um in our particular product at the moment there are um there are definitely trends with regards to getting fresh from the farm or the, or the door there's also trends around um flexitarianism where people are reducing their meat intake to try to have less meat but better quality meat um and trying to have a more healthier uh dietary plate which in our community in muslim community we have diabetes issues we have uh, obesity issues um having that nutritional plate and healthy plate is better so we always position ourselves as a quality product we always say buy less but buy better quality <coughs> and um so what if, uh, there's i think two interesting questions to get your thoughts on one was uh you know you've got these new companies that are taking a, like a single cell or a single few cells from animals and then growing them in a lab uh where do you see that whole thing going uh, do you have any kind of insights or views on that it's um <coughs> excuse me it's very difficult to know because it's so new mm. um is there going to be consumer acceptability of it um it does seem very frankensteinish at the moment mm. but maybe some of those things can be uh, overcome uh, from our perspective we have to sort of see first from a, from a slavic perspective are there any concerns there could there be any concerns around the culture mm. or how is grown etc um and then from a sort of a nutrition perspective is this good for us you know mm. we, before they used to have gm crops and they used to say this is perfectly fine but then they realized actually some of the modifications going a bit too far yeah. some might be okay so i think there's still some of these uh, nuances to be determined to sort of see that is mm-hmm. it going to be good for the industry uh, or for the consumers or not yeah um and we as a business will have to respond accordingly from a lamp perspective it is more of a niche product compared to poultry and beef there's less volume of it um but it's a grazing animal it's outdoors they live good healthy lives um a lot of the land in the uk isn't suitable for anything else because it's on the hills other than grazing animals so we still see there being a supply and a market for um lamb in particular mm. um but there might be challenges around trying to um how does that fit within uh the price points that people want within 
the nutritional values that people want, etc. So interesting, and and you know talking about you know so the whole idea behind it is that it kind of reduces um, I don't know the production of carbon dioxide and the redu- reduction of water. Mm. Uh, I mean, do you guys kind of um, uh, I mean from a business perspective, it probably makes sense to reduce the consumption of water, for example, in your um, in your production line as well, right? Oh, absolutely. But th- but those also, again, those high-level environmental um, concerns are misleading because a lot of them are based on the um, cattle feedlots in America right. where they're bringing a lot of soya, a lot of piped water into those systems to fatten the cattle. Um, so in the case of, um, say, lambs on the grasses in, in the UK, first of all, the water that falls on there are rainwater. It's not piped water that goes yeah, yeah, yeah. up there. And secondly, they um, on the environmental emissions. So something that's most recently come out is that the emissions from livestock is methane, which then gets converted into CO two equivalents. Mm. But the life cycle of methane is different from CO two. So whereas CO two might be in the atmosphere for hundreds of years, methane is only in the atmosphere for about ten or so years. So providing the number of animals doesn't increase, actually you're not going to add to mm. the climate change effect of those. Of the animals that exist there at the at the moment, you'd make more reductions environmentally from like our factory, and you can see some of our solar panels over there, reducing some of those um, type of emissions. So how to go from oil burning yeah. fossil fuels to renewable? renewable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's and so that's if you like the pure CO two rather than the CO two equivalents. Reducing the pure CO two is where you you see the more of the benefit from an environmental perspective. Hmm. I see eventually there being some sort of labeling that will um, alert consumers that this meat is being produced like this or this meat is being produced like that. So those that are more environmentally conscious, um, they can be more satisfied with grass-fed British lamb, for example. Mm -hmm. And um, sorry for like jumping around, um, but going back to the, you know, thinking about um, the, you know, the business lessons that people can learn from, you know, your journey. so you know you you started at forty million, you know, <coughs> sixty million. Uh, were there any stages that you know you thought something's happened here that could be potentially you know catastrophic to the business? And how yes. do you deal with that? <laughs> yes, um, foot and mouth disease is one. Yeah, the foot and mouth is an animal disease that doesn't affect the human health, but it stops you exporting. So that happened in in two thousand and one, and again in two thousand and seven. So we went from working five days a week because we're 85% export to working two days a week. Wow. Now, that is a big risk for us as a, as a business. But we have since 2001 diversified. So we have now got, as well as our meat business, which are our bread and butter, we have got um, a hotel, student lets, commercial units, residential units. Um, so we've got you know property worth in probably about 20 odd million pounds worth of various investment that just brings in a steady income mm. regardless of what's happened in the volatile meat industry so diversifying is very important mm. um, I think also not taking um, excessive risk in terms of leveraging the, the business um, our situation has been the opposite in that because of our previous experience we, we have probably taken too little risk <laughs> we probably could have done more than what we've I see yeah. what we've um, what we've done and um, but we also changed certain things as well. So locally here, I've also spent time because it's important to me. The business for us, Abraham, is is a means to to an end. It's not the the end itself. Yeah. 
Um, you know, Alhamdulillah, Allah Ta'ala has given us more than what we need. Um, so we want to have the business to be able to help Islam Muslims in our own way that we can. So we set up our own mosque here on site, which was originally for the uh, our own staff, but it, it, it now attracts wider people in it's the awesome, countryside. Yeah. And we do a lot of outreach work from there. We have a lot of schools coming to visit. We have open mosque days, open iftar days. We have um, Alam there, who is also a Sharia advisor of our business. We have Alam out as children, uh, sisters classes, monthly classes. Um, that was an important part uh, of our, so that's set up as a separate uh, Creative Islamic Islamic Center. And mm-hmm. um, we also have our foundation. So in our foundation, our business and our other businesses will give money to that tune about half a million. And wow. um, that's, a mixed from uh, zakah, lilla, riba. Um, obviously, from from some I've seen some of your podcasts, heard some of your podcasts before about calculation of zakah and the unique um, challenges for working out in a business, etc. Yeah, yeah. So we 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 worked that out, but then we decided quite early on. So so this, so this is a chat to your quality foundation. We decided quite early on. We don't want to just build a hospital or build a school a bit more, which we could have done. You know, we could have sort of done that. Course, but yeah. um, in a way, that's not our forte. Um, we want to focus on our core job of trying to make money and select charities who we know are doing a good job in building schools, building hospitals, etc. and support them to do those things. Mm-hmm. So in our foundation, for example, we have separate pots for, for them. So any zakat money that goes into the zakat pot. You have a, a lila pot, a riba pot, and you have a general pot. Then depending on the project that comes through, so we might have, for example, a school in Pakistan that, that they want to fund. Um, we look at the project, if we like the project, we then sort of assess, right, how much of this project is zakatable, mm. how much could work for riba, and, and obviously anything would work for, for lila. So we could say, okay, for this school, we might do the car park from riba money, yeah. things like that. Yeah. But the education the, uh, and all the rest of it, we want the school to make an assessment of how many children are there are eligible for zakat. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And if 70% of the school is eligible for zakat, maybe 70% of that fund we might give from our zakat fund, the rest from other funds. So we try to do, and, and, and on top of that, what we try to do more recently is that we want the charities to not just do Islamic good deeds, but work in an Islamic manner. Mm. So we try to ask them, look, how do you do your own due diligence? How do you ensure that your employees um, you know, can pray on, on their side as, as they're yeah, doing? Yeah. Um, have, are you using Islamic banking? Are you a Riba free organization? Um, how do you run your organization? Mm. So not just about the deeds, the good deeds that they're undoubtedly doing as well, and the impact of that, but in terms of how they're doing that, That's are they helping yeah. the Islamic economy to develop and prosper? Yeah. Uh, we are a riba-free business um, in, in EQL. It doesn't mean we don't have any conventional bank hands. Yeah. It means that whatever we do have, we take the riba out of that. Yeah. Um, Donate that, give that away, whatever. Yeah. Correct. And then they, well, alongside that, we also have Islamic bank accounts where we put savings money and use as a current account yeah. to, to, to help there be a liquidity in the Islamic finance. Of course, yeah, uh, of course. Well. I think that's a really good point, to be honest. Um, I mean, we, we recently set up as a, as a business uh, and we just went, we, we went through that, the mainstream route and that just take ages. So in the end, we just went for an online bank. Uh, I, I don't think, well, they don't give, any, give us any interest anyway. Yeah. Um, but I think that's a fair point. I might, I might have to look into a Rayan or, <coughs> or a gatehouse or someone uh, to set up there, inshallah. Um, so, Rizwan, I wanted to, um, before probably you know, we should wrap up um, and you know, let you get back to your family, um, I wanted to kind of ask you if you had any 
um, kind of final thoughts as someone who's been in business for a while and kind of been a little bit in the corporate world, but also in a family business, uh, you know, you've been leading a certain industry as well. What would you, what would, if, if you could give any advice to an 18 year old or a 21 year old, or even like, you know, early 20s, thinking about setting up their business, mm-hmm. what would you say? I would say that, you know, really research the market that you're going into. These days, everything is so competitive. Mm-hmm. You need to understand your market and what your points of differentiation are to make that. Aside from that, collaboration is really important. Uh, we firmly believe that, you know, you can do a lot of good with other businesses by giving some of the, sharing some of the knowledge and experience that you have. For example, we trade a lot abroad, in France and other places. If any Muslim business or other business want to know about trading in France, we'd be happy to share some of the knowledge that we have. So collaboration, again, building your right business networks is important, mm. whether it's through the Chamber of Commerce or some other sort of uh, uh, network that could be developed. You know, in, in the time, you might want to have a, a British Muslim Chamber of Commerce that tries to bring like-minded people uh, together. Um, but the fact, Ibrahim, that something is halal or Islamic is not enough to succeed as a business. Yeah. that should be a starting point sometimes people say that because something is stamped halal or something is um, Islamic looking that it, it deserves to be a profitable business a profitable business is when people are willing to pay the price for your products mm. that will allow you to earn a profit mm. yeah, sometimes people say that oh yes we want this product but are they willing to actually pay for it if they say they want it but they're not willing to pay for it that's not market demand that's aspiration mm. So it's important for, for, for Muslims to sort of say, not why are people aspiring to, but why are they actually willing to pay for mm. and build your business models around that? Because you need that solid base. And then, yes, if there are other things that will benefit the ummah elsewhere, once you have a solid financial base, you can then use that to then finance other sort of social means as well. So knowing your market um, and trying to collaborate and, 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 and have a strong support network is really important. Inshallah. And then finally, uh, Brexit. What do you think is going to happen? Are we leaving? Are we staying? What's going to, what's going to happen? Um, I am praying for divine intervention. <laughs> and um, yeah, it's, it's, a, look, it's a big risk for our business. Yeah. Uh, the indications are at the moment that they may delay it again. Uh, what we'd like to sort of see is that because this is such a momentous um, change for the country, um, we were likely to sort of be a, a, a delay and then a second referendum to give people the final vote. And whatever the final vote is, whether it's leave, whether it's remain, um, there can be no mistakes about people knowing uh, what they're going for this time. Yeah. Uh, it would be a disaster for a business like ours, which are geared towards exports, um, but we can live with it. People are doing it with the eyes wide open. Yeah. I'm not convinced that that's the case at the moment. Yeah. Well, Jazakallah Khair is one. It's been an absolute pleasure. And... Uh, you know, I've certainly learned a lot about uh, you know your industry and the halal meat uh, process because I've never been to an abattoir before. Uh, so Jazakallah Khair for taking the time and inshallah we'll we'll get you on when you get to the next eighty million, hundred million. Inshallah. <laughs> so there you have it, folks. That was Rizwan Khalid from Euro Quality Lambs, and I think the, the one of the key take homes that I wanted to share from all of that experience was just how um, humble Rizwan was, uh, even though he runs what is, you know, a, a massive operation, 
he was very very down to earth and easy to get on with and the other thing that struck me was uh, the vision that he has for his business and the kind of uh, focus on excellence and execution which you know quite frankly is something I can learn from because I feel like sometimes we can end up trying to cut corners and trying to go too quickly but you know Rizwan was some is someone who has built his entire operation on being excellent and you know just the fact that there was construction going on on the on the weekend uh, well, because it can't go on during the weekday and you know the construction that was going on was they were kind of resurfacing one of the rooms um, which is the sort of thing that doesn't need to be done. It's not urgent, urgent. If it's not done, then it's not the end of the world. But you know, it's that kind of it's testament to EQL's kind of focus on you know being the best at what they do and kind of pushing the boundaries that they they were resurfacing a floor. It's very much the sort of thing that your typical Asian business wouldn't possibly do. Um, so that was another thing that I kind of took away from that, which was very interesting. And then, of course, the stun, stunning kind of uh, insight, I think, was was fascinating as well. So Jazakallah khairan for, for listening. And if, if you enjoyed this kind of, you know, roaming report, then please do, uh, number one, comment on, you know, your podcast, iTunes, that sort of thing, to let us know that was the case. Drop us a line and tell us. And uh, if you have any ideas about who we should be interviewing next or what you would like to hear about uh, us going back behind the scenes on, then, you know, please do feel free to just drop me a line on that. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.